Hello, and welcome to From Her View. My name is Liz Warner, and here each week I'll be speaking to extraordinary women from around the world. You'll hear all about their personal story, how and why they said yes to a groundbreaking idea in their life. We'll also dive deep into a behind-the-scenes look at what it's actually like to live in fascinating but perhaps misunderstood places like Afghanistan, Cuba, Somalia, Iran, and Venezuela. I am inviting you to gain a deeper understanding of the far-reaching corners of the world from a different perspective. Hers. I could not be more excited to finally be releasing the first From Her View episode. Today, I kick things off with a rich conversation with entrepreneur, trainer, athlete, and all-around sports superstar, Nellie Attar. Nellie is a Lebanese national born and raised in Saudi Arabia, and in 2017, she quit her full-time job as a therapist and life coach to start teaching fitness and dance classes in Saudi Arabia's capital city of Riyadh. Yes, you heard that correctly. You might think that Saudi Arabia would be less than welcoming to a woman starting her own dance studio, but Nellie's story reveals the warmth, energy, and openness that most people overlook in Saudi culture. We talk about her journey to starting MOVE, what the media gets wrong about Saudi Arabia, hint, it's a lot, and what one does next after literally summiting the world's tallest mountain, Mount Everest. It's full of thoughtful, wise insights about the incredible power of doing what you love and sharing it with other women along the way. I hope you enjoy. Nelly, that would be great if you could please introduce yourself, tell me your story, and in your own words, what do you do and what feeds you? Sure. Okay. So I'm an athlete, trainer, and entrepreneur. Uh, I'm Lebanese and I'm based in Saudi. I've been working in sports now for, you could say, about five, six years. Um, And prior to that, I used to work in mental health. So I started off my career as a psychologist, wanting to work with people and help people. And I was living in Lebanon and London at the time. And then after graduating, I moved back to Saudi. Um, And I started off working in a hospital uh, with patients that had brain injury. And as I was working with these patients, I started to realize how important movement was. So I started to involve movement in our cognitive therapy sessions. I started to involve movement in group therapy sessions. And at the time, access to sports for females was very limited. There were very limited opportunities for females to get active in Saudi. So I started to offer classes on a freelance basis. I was certified and I thought, you know what, this is a great way to help people get active and also fill up my time with with sports and physical activity. Um, And taking that step, started to open up a new world for me, the world of sports and, and, and working in sports. And so I started to do this on a freelance basis while working in psychology and therapy. And then over the years, that started to grow for me more and more. So I started to offer CrossFit classes, spinning classes, um, personal training sessions. Eventually, I signed with Nike in 2016. 
to be their first trainer in Saudi. And then in 2017, I decided to launch my space, my business in sports. And that was at the time when Saudi started to open up and Saudi started to embrace sports. And this whole new landscape for sports and women in sports started to kick off in 2017. Um, so it was it was a really good time to venture into sports entrepreneurship. And I opened up my space, which at the time was a bit of dance, a bit of sports, uh, and a bit of yoga. And over the years, it morphed into becoming Saudi's first dance studio. So we now focus on dance classes. And um, yeah, it's called Move. The space is called Move. And so this is pretty much what I do in a nutshell, along with running marathons here and there, climbing a few mountains here and there, um, and, and staying active. So movement fuels me. Movement is life for me. Wow. And, you know, you were describing before how Saudi began to open up and then the, your community that was based around movement, you know, kept did you initially receive any backlash or or sort of resistance um, from the you know community in Riyadh about sort of your your business and launching this this initiative that was solely based on movement? Um, so initially, I would say when I started to train as an athlete, I did face challenges, and it was mainly to do with where do I train. Um, where can I train outdoors? Because that was really frowned upon as a woman. And if I were to train outdoors after my habaya, and then if I do want to train outdoors, who do I train with? So there are a lot of challenges that you wouldn't typically face living anywhere else. Um, but obviously those challenges are no longer there. But in terms of opening move, I thought there would be a lot more challenges. I thought there would be backlash because we're introducing something that was not very common and not spoken of, which was dance and dance fitness. So there were a few gyms offering dance, but it was very low key um, and it was mainly dance fitness, not dance per se. So, um, yeah, of course, naturally, I thought there would be backlash, but no, actually, People were very receptive and people were very welcome to um, this new concept. And I feel like it was because of people's response and their positive attitude towards MOVE that we started to grow and expand and delve more into dance and focus more on dance. And the government has been very supportive of what we do over the last two years, I'd say. We've partnered up with the government um, on a number of initiatives with schools, uh, with with uh, running, with dance in general. So yeah, luckily it's been it's been a very positive experience in that aspect with people accepting the change, accepting this new concept, and supporting us as well. Wow, that's amazing! And have you noticed also other similar gyms have popped up? Almost not like competition, but kind of following. Um, your initial path after setting up MOVE? Yes, definitely. So when when MOVE was started, um, when we started, it was April 2017. Around that time, female gym licensing was launched. Prior to that, there was no female gym licensing. So whether you owned a gym or not, it was illegal. Um, so around, I think, August 2017, female gym licensing was launched. You can apply to, to get a license. Um, and so around that time, gyms started to pop up anyways. And I feel like Move also helped pave the way for many others to offer new concepts, new ideas, venture into things that were not um, offered in the country. And now there are a few places that focus on dance as well. 
they're similar but also different. They focus on other areas of dance, but it's amazing to see. It's amazing to see that there's many ways for people to get active now, many ways for females of all ages to get active and to also express through dance and art and movement in general. And are the classes that are offered by MOVE, is it, are they mixed or are they just you know female only? There, we started off with females only. And prior to the pandemic, we started to have mixed events where it was appropriate and when it was possible. Um, and then obviously the pandemic happened, so we stopped. But we're doing things online now. And the classes that we offer online, a lot of them are mixed. And that's amazing too. I mean, obviously sort of paving the way for more females involved, but to also, you know, establish this connection that movement can be, you know, a joint venture. Absolutely. So if you had to boil down your entire experience of being a female entrepreneur in Saudi Arabia, what are you most proud of about having started MOVE? I'm proud that I took that step. I'm proud that I took a risk. I took a big risk um, of One, leaving my full-time job, uh, changing careers, doing something that I loved, something that really moved me. And and it just, when I used to think of movement and sports and teaching classes and training, that's what lit that huge fire within me. And I was so curious to learn, to connect with people in that aspect, to help people. And so I feel like I was so proud that I took that step. Um, And I tried because I didn't know what it was going to be like. I didn't know what area we were going to focus on. I didn't know what the name was going to be. I remember when I started the space, it was a warehouse from my stepdad's company um, with no mirrors, no stereo, no nothing. And so starting from that space was a risk. I don't know if people would come. I don't know if people would trust me enough to walk into this like dodgy little warehouse. But I tried. And that's what I'm proud of. I tried and look at where it got me to. Um, And I'm so proud of how many lives it's changed. It's changed my life. It's changed the lives of the trainers, the the lives of many of our clients that didn't know what sports felt like, what movement felt like, how good it felt to be in a room. It feels to be in a room with people dancing to music, expressing to music. So that's what I'm most proud of. No, it's, it's, it's amazing. It must be truly the most rewarding experience walking into, you know, the room before a class and just feeling the energy and just thinking, you know, maybe five, definitely 10 years before that, that didn't exist at all. And um, again, that you really created this movement. So seeing as this past year has been, you know, crazy, a roller coaster year for us all. And especially, you know, you starting Move, it was a physical space, of course, that um, I'm sure has been affected by the movement restrictions or just restrictions in general in Riyadh. So how have you um, had to pivot, I guess, in your business, seeing that the last year has, has um, probably proven to be difficult for, yeah, allowing people to be in your, fi- your space physically? So as soon as as soon as the pandemic happened, Liz, um, we obviously had to close the space, and we were told that it was going to be about a week or two. Uh, we don't know how long it was going to be. So for the first week or two, we decided, you know what? Let's launch our website. It's we had a we had a half a website, so our website was up there, but we barely had any content. So we used those two weeks to actually finalize our website. After the two weeks had lapsed. 
Um, the government then stated, we're going into full lockdown for about a month or two. So then at the time, I thought, you know what? Let's try different things on Instagram. There's so many tools on Instagram, from IGTV to going live. Let's try and connect with our audience. Because um, previously, Instagram was a marketing tool, but it wasn't. we never really experimented with all these tools in terms of interacting and, and really engaging with our audience. And so that's what we did. We spent about a month or two um, connecting with trainers across the world, having them come on our platform, connecting with people across the world. So it was just such a nice way to connect the dance community at large. After those two months had lapsed, we decided to start offering Zoom classes because I mean, we still wanted to offer a way for our trainers to make money. We still had expenses to cover. We still wanted to run our business. So we thought, you know what? Instagram is a great tool. Let us also, we'll continue to offer these free classes, but we also need to take care of the business and our trainers. And so we started to offer these Zoom classes, um, all sorts of dance classes and fitness classes. And we started to do that for a couple of months. Um, and we also thought, you know what? Let's go beyond running Zoom classes for us and for the trainers, but also for charity. So we started to do a lot of charity classes. So whether it was for kids in Uganda or for August 4, um, what was happening to families in Lebanon or charities here in Saudi. So we started to run a lot of these charity classes. And honestly, Liz, my approach to all this was try to do your best, whatever that looks like, whether it's supporting people that are in need, whether it's getting people active and offering them solutions, free solutions, or making some sort of income for the trainers and move to sustain itself, whatever it is, just do your best. Keep an open mind and learn because no one knows. No one, no one knew what the next few months were going to look like. And so that's what we did. There were some things that worked out, some other things that didn't work out. Um, and from all this, one of the things that's actually uh, stuck and that did really well was my fitness program, which is called Stronger From Home. I started that around March um, and also with the intention of, I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know how many people I should have on this program. What are the, the classes I'm going to be doing? But it did really well from the first month and it was live classes, live fitness classes. And it helped women all across the world from, from the very first month. So I decided to continue this program and now we're on to our 10th uh, 10th month um, of virtual classes. Yeah, fitness classes. The dance classes, Liz, they would do well um, when it's not a program, when people don't have to commit for a month or two months, when it's a pop-up class or class for charity. So we continue to do these things. We continue to do these activities. We continue to partner with brands as well to offer dance classes for kids and adults. Um and I think that's how we've adapted. We just keep an open mind and literally month by month, we check in, we see what's working, what's not working, and we continue to go down that path. I mean, exactly. We were explaining before how Instagram before was just a marketing tool to probably communicate about, you know, what move is up to. And now it's sort of the main means of connecting with everyone and not only with communities in Riyadh, but across the world. I mean, that's absolutely amazing. And so in a way you're, your business and um, just the community in itself has probably exploded because of this um, just in these last 10 months. So that's, that's really, really amazing. So now onto a detail that I cannot not mention about your incredible life achievements. So in 2019, you summited Mount Everest. 
which is wild. And I still cannot even fathom. I mean, it's one thing even to, to get to base camp, which of course a lot of people tend to do now who are into outdoor sports, but can you give us an overview of your experience? You know, how did you initially decide to, to go for this crazy idea to, to do this? Sure. Um, so it's crazy to think now it's been two years since we've done Everest. Um, the idea came from actually a dinner table. I was having dinner with a friend and he's the guy I climb with. He's a friend that I met on one of my climbs and we started to climb since. Um, we started climbing We started climbing together in 2017 and every single year we try and aim for a bigger climb, a bigger adventure, more mountains. And so in 2018, I think that was in April, we were having dinner. And he was like, Nelly, what mountain are we going to do next? What climb should we go for? And I was thinking, I don't know, maybe we could do one of the seven summits. I mean, we've already done a few of them or maybe somewhere in the Alps. And then he was like, no, let's, let's do Everest. Let's just go and aim for Everest. And I remember thinking, is he crazy? We don't have the experience for it. Um, It's, it's, it's a wild idea. I don't know if we're going to be able to do it. No, we're not ready for Everest. I come back home that night and I couldn't sleep. And I just thought that like, it's a crazy idea, but that's what makes it so good. It's wild. We, we don't know where to start. There's so much to prepare for. And there's only a year if we're going to do it in April, 2019, we basically have a year to prepare. And so I woke up the second day, asked my mom and my dad for their blessings. I'm like, would you be okay with me climbing Everest? And they were like, yeah, sure. I don't think Liz, they comprehended what climbing Everest meant. So anyways, April 2018, we decided we're going to do Everest. And so that's how the journey unfolded of knowing what Everest was like. What is the equipment? What kind of training do I have to do? Where can I do that kind of training from Saudi? What expeditions do we have to embark on to train for Everest? What is Everest going to look like during those two months? Um, what company do we go for? And it was a year of learning and experimenting and training and climbing. So really that year for me was work and Everest and work and Everest. And it was amazing. To be honest, it was an amazing, um, enriching year. I felt like I had so much meaning, so much to look forward to, so much to build towards, especially because Everest was so scary. Um, and I'm, I live in the desert. I'm a, I'm a sand baby or a desert baby. I love my heat. I love the sun. I love, <laughs> I love the sand. I love the sea. And uh, that, that's actually my biggest challenge on climbs, the weather, because I'm not used to the altitude. I'm not used to the cold. Um, but doing Everest really proved to me that no dream is big enough. And if you prepare well enough, and if you do your homework, if you do your training, if uh, you put this whole ecosystem together to help you get to that goal, you could do it, no matter how big the goal is, no matter how big the dream is. And alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, which means thank God, thank goodness in Arabic, um, alhamdulillah, we made it. We, we made it. We made it in peace, in one piece, because that year was a very dangerous year. There were many people that lost their lives. Um, yeah, may they rest in peace. So... Really, luckily, my entire team made it um, 
and uh, made it as in everyone was safe off the mountain. Um, wow. Yeah. And, you know, just even going back to your team, was it difficult to even find the company? I mean, how was that? And even just the process of, of starting the climb, was there ever any moment where you're like, okay, actually this is, were you kind of um, operating on full adrenaline the whole time to get you to the top or, you know, what was, was an emotional roller coaster? I imagine too, climbing it. Of course, it was such a such an emotional roller coaster from from the start. The climb for me started from April two thousand eighteen, because that was the entire journey of me getting mentors on board and coaches and training. The climb was just the cherry on top, and the whole way through was an emotional roller coaster, um, and. It's picking the picking the company for us. The most important thing was safety. Of course, the prices vary. You can go from you can go from thirty thousand dollars to about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for climbing Everest. To us, the most important thing was safety, and you don't want to cut corners on Everest, really. Um, so we found a company that had the least. Um, mortality rate or the least like death rate on Everest. And it was an American company, uh, Madison Mountaineering, and they did a fantastic job, I have to say. Um, and, and for them, the most important thing is their client safety, not getting them to the summit. That is secondary. The most important thing is safety. And we saw that over and over again. So Throughout the two months, I felt like I was in good hands. I felt like I wasn't climbing with it, with a company. I felt like I was climbing with my family, really. Um, and this group of people that I didn't know before became family because we'd eat lunch and breakfast and dinner together. And that's what Garrett, who's the founder of Madison Mountaineering, that's what he did right. He made it. He he encouraged us to act like a team to be one, to move together as one, to make decisions collectively. So he would recommend a few things, but then we would all come up with a decision together. Um, and so we we asked around a lot. Um, we asked a lot of climbers that have done Everest before. And I, my friends and I decided, you know what? Madison Mountaineering seems like the safest bet. And I'm really glad we went for that decision. Um, and yeah, of course, it was a it was a crazy ride from the weather to some of our team members falling sick uh, along the way to um, us not knowing when our summit attempt was going to be. Initially, it was mid-May and then it was pushed for another two weeks because of the weather conditions. Um, yeah, so there were there were just a lot of um, hurdles along the way. But you know that when you sign up to something like Everest, you know, you know that there's a lot of unknown, you know, that there's going to be a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of surprises along the way. And um, luckily we made it and, and I'm, I'm going to be forever grateful for staying safe and making it to the summit and making it to the summit with my closest friends. I mean, what kept you going during the really tough moments, like when you were told that you couldn't summit for another couple of weeks, like what was your reaction? And I mean, did you really, you know, do you repeat a mantra? Like what, do you have any exercise exercises that you do to really get you through those tough moments that not necessarily that you want to give up, but you're feeling particularly low? Uh, mantra is never give up. I'd say my mantra is never, ever give up. 
it's those times where you're struggling and you're gasping for air, metaphorically or physically, it's those times that if you keep going, you'll gain so much out of these moments. Those are the moments that'll make you stronger. Those are the moments that'll make you more resilient. It's like now, Liz, I told you the beginning of the podcast, I was feeling down today and I felt like I was feeling very down emotionally. And I think a part of it has to do with everything that's going on, but I persevered and we're still doing this podcast. So um, Everest is like that. And I think every challenge um, that I take on in sports is like that. There's a lot of moments where you want to give up. You feel like you can't do it, but you have to keep pushing yourself. You have to keep pushing yourself, never, ever give up. And I think some of the things that helped me stay focused and stay driven on the climb were my friends and my family. Uh, I, I, stay, I stay connected with my family as, as long as I was able to through our GPS devices or um, through internet whenever we had internet. And I'd ask them for voice notes. I'd ask them for messages that I, that I would actually leave till later. I wouldn't read them as soon as I received them. But I'd tell them, please send me an email. Please send me something that I want to read when I feel down. Um, and that really, really helped me. That really helped me. Their voice notes, their messages to me, um, their encouragement. And of course, having my friends with me. I climbed with some of my closest friends. And having them with me, like whenever I'd feel down, they would be there to comfort me. Whenever they'd feel down, I'd be there to comfort them. So all these things factored in for sure to keep me strong. And what did it feel like actually summiting too? Just what was that? What was your reaction? I mean, I can imagine there must have been some tears involved, perhaps. When you so actually, many when tears. You summited, Yeah. Oh my God, I cried so much. As soon as I saw the summit, I was like, what? Is that the summit? Really? And I started to cry and cry and cry and cry and cry. And mainly because I visualized that I'm going to be crying on the summit. So I'm like, you know what? Because you visualized it, you're going to cry. Um, it, was, it was very overwhelming. Being up there was very, very overwhelming. There were a lot of people. The views were just incredible. Um, you're at the highest point in the world. And uh, I just, I couldn't digest that I made it. That was me standing on the top of the world. It was that moment. It was very scary as well. We saw a lot of dead bodies along the way. We had to walk over dead bodies. So it was just fear mixed with anxiety, mixed with like ecstasy, um, mixed with just, I think, I don't know. It was just a cocktail of emotions. It's really hard to describe how I felt that moment. Uh, but I did feel very overwhelmed. And I, I remember feeling like I wanted to come back down because it just felt so dangerous. It felt like it was not a place for us to be. It's not a place for humans to be. That's why they call it the, the death zone. That's why they call it the death zone. Life is dark up there. Life is scary up there. There were so many people I just felt like, you know what? I made it. I'm glad I made it. But now I need to come back down. I need to come back down to be safe. And that's when I'll pretty much be happy. How many minutes did you end up actually staying on the summit? Was it like 15 minutes or a bit more? I think it was a bit more. I think it was 30 to 45 minutes, actually, because I got there and my phone was dead. My GoPro was dead. Um, and then the rest of the girls uh, made it. One of the girls, Mona, my 
who's one of my best friends, she arrived a little before me. And then the other girls that I was climbing with arrived like 10 and 15 minutes after us. And I wanted to get my picture. I also wanted to do a dance video for my sister's birthday, which I didn't get to do. Um, but anyways, I, I wanted to get a picture and it, it was just crazy. No cameras. Um, the girls showed up and I just really wanted to take in that moment. And I think I ended up staying for, yeah, I'm not sure. I think 30 to 45 minutes as I was making my way back down, Elia shows up, which is the videographer that was with us. And then, um, luckily he took a, a few pictures of me and then I, I made it back down. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. And so after that experience, is there any, you know, after you've summited Everest, what, you know, how can you continue to, to push yourself? Is there any big grand adventure that you now dream of doing in the future that could potentially even not necessarily top this, but that could be as exciting for you? Because I think that's always a little bit hard after you've you've completed a grand adventure like this, especially over a year, you know, it really consumed your life. How do you um, continue on from this to to continue pushing your limits? Of course, there's so much to look forward to, Liz. Um, I remember actually thinking that when I was coming down from Everest, I was thinking, what next? What am I going to do next? There are so many um, challenges that you could do, harder climbs, more technical climbs. Um, there's the seven summits that I want to complete now. I've done four and there's three that are left. There's K2 that I would love to climb one day. Um, hopefully if I build the right kind of skills and technical abilities to do it, uh, there's so much that you could do. Um, and I think ultra marathon and ultra running is another challenge in itself. And um, I think taking on new sports, trying out new adventure sports, is something super exciting for me. So as soon as I'm able to travel again normally, given our circumstances today, um, whenever I'm able to travel again and 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 go on adventure travel, there's a lot that I want to do for sure. And there's a lot to look forward to. Yeah, I love that perspective because I think, yeah, sometimes you get stuck on on your past and and sort of what you've accomplished, and it, it is so important to just you know continue continuing to look forward to the next adventure because there are so many steps out there. Absolutely. So I feel like I could continue asking you a million questions about your truly incredible life journey so far. But I now wanted to sort of shift the conversation a bit and ask about your experience growing up in, in Riyadh, in Saudi Arabia. So I know also you're, you identify yourself as Lebanese, but, um, and we can, talk about both you know Lebanese and Saudi culture but I wanted to ask you first what is a common myth or stereotype about Saudi Arabia and how does it compare to your lived experience a common stereotype is you're a woman how can you do this from Saudi uh, Saudi is very limiting there are not a lot of opportunities in Saudi Saudi is not a safe country um, Saudi is not diverse enough for me to live there. I've heard a lot of these comments before. And honestly, I owe Saudi so much. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. I don't think I would be if I didn't live in Saudi. Saudi has opened up so many opportunities for me as a woman and as a foreigner as well. Um, and being in Saudi, there's so much to do. I mean, you can see it from both ways, right? You could see it as there's not much to do. So it's limiting, or you could see it 
on the other end of the spectrum, which is there's not much to do. So there is so much more for me to contribute. And there's so much more for me to create in the country. And, and, and that's how it's been. Life has been, I feel life in Saudi has been, um, I, I could, I mean, all I could say is I'm truly blessed. Uh, I love what I do. And there's just been so many opportunities in terms of sports, mental health, female empowerment. And the fact that um, the fact that the country is relatively young, it's been changing super quickly, so fast. And now there's um, an entertainment authority and there's a ministry of sports and there's so many tourism destinations that are opening up. And so I feel like Saudi is really going down the right path. And in terms of safety, I mean, I can walk out at 2 a.m. in the street, go for a run at 2 a.m. in the street. Tell me where I can do that. You can't do that in many countries. As a woman, yeah, at 2 a.m. I can go out with my ear pods and go for a nice run and I, and I feel safe. And that's what I love about living in Saudi. And I will never take that for granted that there's this level of safety and security and the government really um, stresses on that. The safety of women, especially safety of women while driving, safety of women while embarking on activities. If there's anyone that violates that or threatens that, um, there's a lot of measures taken. So it makes me feel respected and appreciated as a woman living here, which actually goes against the stereotype of Saudi. No, absolutely. I mean, I feel like if you ask most people you know, in the Western world what their perception of Saudi Arabia would be like, it's that women have, you know, not as many rights and, you know, a long list of, of criticisms. But in fact, you know, this is why I'm also asking you from your perspective, because it's, it's obviously a, a land of opportunity now for women, obviously. Absolutely. I mean, it's changed, right? And we all start somewhere. All countries are, I mean, all countries are, are, are changing in their own ways. And all countries are trying to find solutions to existing problems that they have or challenges that they have. And, what I admire about Saudi is that they're changing in the right direction. They're trying to work on the challenges that they had, the restrictions that they had, and they're doing it relatively quickly. And people have been very accepting and, and welcoming for, you know, of, of these changes. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I just feel truly blessed to be in this country at this point in time in my life, in this period of time as well. Okay. So is there any experience feeling emotional memory that you think of that really makes Riyadh or Saudi Arabia feel home to you? My childhood. My childhood was in Saudi. So, uh, of course, I remember the compound that we lived in. I remember hiking with my dad. Uh, I remember um, theater at school and drama at school. So all these things make me feel like Sadia's home, my childhood memories, especially out in the desert with my dad. And so I've decided to ask the, the same three final questions to all my guests. So question number one, what would you like to tell the world about Saudi Arabia in your own words? Watch the space. I think watch out for Saudi. Saudi is going to become the hot and up and coming place in the Middle East. It's already on the rise and it has so much to offer. It has beautiful natural terrains. It has the Red Sea. Um, 
most of it is still pristine and untouched. And I feel like most countries across the world lack that now. And and Saudi is um, just opening up in terms of business ventures, in terms of entertainment, sports, you name it. 100%. I can only imagine how much of a transition is happening in Saudi Arabia, especially given the country's forward-thinking plans to distinguish itself on the global map. Um, What has been the best advice you've ever received in your lifetime? Trust the process. Trust the process. Yeah. I love that. Absolutely. And that process is, is absolutely, you know, many times even more important than the outcome itself too. Of course. And a lot of times like today, I have to remind myself, trust the process. There are difficult days, there are difficult hours. Uh, there's a lot of challenges that you'll face in your life, but just trust the process. Everything will be okay. And again, this this last question is a bit open-ended and I sort of did that on purpose. And I feel like you already answered it in a number of way, ways. But how do you seek to support other women, either locally in Saudi Arabia, in Lebanon, or around the world? Um, I try to support them through hopefully inspiring them to embrace their authenticity. Um, I think this is something very important for me. My authenticity or my differences used to limit me because I chose for them to limit me. I used to think, no, my hair is curly. That's not acceptable because I'm a woman or girl. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be doing that. Um, Because, for example, I'm not Saudi, I'm not going to get as many opportunities here. And I feel like embracing my authenticity and accepting who I am has opened up a world of possibilities. Because no one's going to be you. And that is your power. And so I feel like I try to really encourage women, um, especially in the Middle East, to remember that. To remember that being a woman in itself is a superpower. And if if you utilize the resources that you have, your personal resources, your talents, your skills, um, your skill could even be empathy. There's so much that you could offer to this world. Um, And I also, I try to help women through movement. What I do is mainly focus towards women. So I try to offer a lending hand um, in sports to a lot of women out there, whether it's through online programs, whether it's through community initiatives, um, whether it's getting women to train with me. When I'm in Lebanon or Saudi or anywhere in the world, I try. I love getting women on board. It's so much more fun and so much more meaningful doing what I do with others and with other women, especially. Um, and, so, and so that's what I feel. And I truly feel like when you do something collectively, you're able to do so much more in this world. When you share what you do, you're able to reach further heights and places that you would have never thought would be possible versus you doing it alone or you competing, quote unquote, with others, other females. Liz, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure connecting with you. And your story is so inspiring. And I love that you're um, connecting with other women in the field and connecting with others to share their story and to inspire others to be active. So thank you for this opportunity.
Once again, I am so appreciative of you tuning into the first episode of From Her View. Please stay tuned for the release of next week's episode coming out every Wednesday, highlighting the vibrancy of life in Cuba. From Her View.